want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. As I pulled it off the target, my wingman said, Dave, I think you've been hit. looks like you're trailing smoke. I looked down at the instrument panel. I didn't see much of anything going on. I said, ah, it's probably just cons because we're in a real high uh, humidity area there. Morning light came on. I had a choice back then, you know, with this, this age-old adage that we have in, in naval aviation that it's uh, generally inadvisable to eject over an area that you just bombed. West, I elected not to go east, which would have taken me back over South Vietnam to the South China Sea. In time, the Big Bang was out the front and the back of the engine, so it started to unwind, so it was time to get out. The F-8, the canopy did go. You, you, you could go through the canopy, but the normal sequence was that the canopy would go. And once the, the whole thing, I was about 12,000 feet, so the whole sequence kept going, pushed you away from the seat. Welcome and thanks for listening, or if you're over on YouTube, thanks for watching the podcast. Before you roll in an episode, I want to talk about something that I've been working on for the last year, and that is E3 Aviation Association. This is a membership-based program that is geared towards elevating you on your aviation journey. Whether that be someone who's just starting out as a private pilot or even thinking about taking flying lessons, to the seasoned airline pilot who's flown for decades, military aviation, aviation photographers, mechanics, and everything in between. E3 is here to elevate you on your journey, and I'm excited because we have an awesome team that has come together to help build a phenomenal program, which I'm going to talk about. But before we get rolling into that, E3 is the title sponsor at Sun and Fun. If you haven't been to Sun and Fun, it is a phenomenal air show. So as an annual E3 member, you get access to the VIP chalet right there on the flight line all week long. And as a monthly member, you get a 50% discount on your E3 membership. If you haven't watched an air show VIP style, you'll never want to go back once you do it. But during that week, we have a whole host of aviation experts that are going to be rolling through the E3 tent, doing podcasts, topic talks, meet and greets, and much more. So you don't want to miss out on that. Your E3 Aviation membership gets you access to online tools, courses, webinars, live Q&As, entertaining media, our digital magazine, regional fly-ins and meetups, conferences, our interactive mobile app, and aviation product discounts. This is our launch month, and as part of that launch month, there is the unique opportunity to become a founding member of E3. This is exclusive and limited to the first 5,000 people who join E3 and they become E3 founding members for life. As a founding member, you get early access to events, additional discounted pricing. E3 is a no risk membership, but becoming a founding member is only limited to this month. So you wanna jump in and join in. The part that really gets me excited about E3 is the awesome team we've brought together that are gonna help you along your journey. 
And this ranges from former Top Gun weapons school instructors to Blue Angels, Thunderbirds, civilian CFIs and double eyes, aircraft mechanics, aviation photographers, and much more. Because in the end, it's all about the people and aviation is a phenomenal community and we're here to elevate your experience. I'm excited about E3 and I hope you are too. I hope to see you out there. I hope to see you at Sun and Fun. We're gonna take this to the next level and we're gonna do it with some phenomenal people. If you want more information or if you wanna become one of those limited 5,000 founding members and join in E3, check out the description down below where I have a link. It'll take you over to the E3 Aviation Association website and you can join in with us. I look forward to seeing you out there. What's up, E3 members? Honored to be sitting here at the National Naval Aviation Museum with Dave Lorenzo. We had the fortunate chance of meeting you the other day. We did a tour around the F-8, which we're gonna talk about in this podcast episode. Uh, so if you haven't checked that out, definitely go check that out. But sir, thanks for joining me here. It's an honor to be able to it's sit down pleasure, and chat and man. hear a little bit about your, your path to where you are sitting today. But with that, can you just tell me what got you involved in aviation and then wanting to go in the military in the first place? Well, I really didn't have any background in the family of military, but I just had this tremendous desire to go to sea. Okay. So I wanted to actually go to the Naval Academy and become a, a, a surface warfare officer. Well, I got there and then things started to change in my mind a little bit and I sort of started to see about flying. I did some private flying, 172 stuff, of course, on my own back before or on the summer months between the years at the Academy. And so I really got interested in aviation and all too. In the last couple of years there, my company officer was a Marine Corps officer. He was a grunt, he wasn't an aviator, but he was very, very impressive. And he probably is the guy more than anything else that put me into the Marine Corps. So I tried to pass a flight physical at the Naval Academy and I flunked. I had a, a half a diopter of astigmatism in one eye and they only allowed a quarter. Okay. And so they said, well, you're not gonna make it. So I went to basic school expecting to become an artillery officer. And while I was there, of course, the Marine Corps was starting to get really heavily involved in the Vietnam War and they were short of pilots. And so they put out the call for more pilots. And so I ended up going up to Bethesda and they put me in what they call a special myoptic study group. And they took my half a diopter of astigmatism and didn't worry about it. And for a fact, I stayed about, until uh, I was about 32 years old, that was almost 10 years, 2020 in both eyes before it started to degrade a little. But at any rate, I was able to pass the flight physical and then from the rest of the era, we went, came on down here to uh, Pensacola and started aviation training. Um, so a couple of things. One thing I always talk about, I'm, I'm very fortunate. You're very fortunate to be able to sit in a cockpit and go fly because a lot of stuff, you can get medically disqualified early on for things True. that you're not necessarily aware of. Living a normal life, maybe it's a heart murmur. Again, you don't get, it doesn't become discovered until you're kind of in the pipeline for an officer commissioning program, yeah. et cetera. So getting fortunate and you just never know. But that time period, I like to ask you about that. Joining, going to the, wanting to go to the Naval Academy it's a much different time period than when I came up. I'm right after 9-11, that was a catalyst and a motivator for me sure. to join. But the socio-political environment during that time period, much different. Did that have any kind of impact on your, your drive? Was that, was that up at the forefront? Well, the truth of the matter is, is the, I, I was a big fan of John F. Kennedy's. Okay. He was president back when I was in school and all that too. And his push towards trying to stop the spread of, of communism in Southeast Asia was very compelling to me. And uh, 
the fact that I was already in the military, really, because the day you, induction day at the Naval Academy on, on July the 5th of 1960, you raise your right hand, you're in. I think they have a two-year grace period now where they can bail out, but right. we didn't have that choice <laughs> back then. But at any rate, we were in, and we were, uh, most of us were really gung-ho. You coming out of the academy back in those days, you knew one thing. If you were going to fly airplanes, you were going to war. It was a guarantee, you know, no doubt about it. And so we were all pretty gung-ho about it and all, too. Socioeconomic problems a little bit later in the 1960s when pretty much everybody turned against the Vietnam War. That got to be a, a bit of a downer. But uh, at the earlier, earlier stages of, of my career, no, we were, we were ready to go. So fighting communism, stopping the spread of communism. Yeah, we were believers. We really were believers. We felt that was worthwhile to go to, go to war for, and uh, most of us did. Uh, Talk to me about pilot training and then the next few years after pilot training. Extensive pilot training back in the day. We started out in the T-34, the Mentor. There's one hanging from the ceiling right behind us over here. That was our primary trainer. I was lucky enough to have some about 30, 25, 30 hours in 172 okay. time when I got into it. So flying airplanes wasn't, up, you know, it wasn't unique to me. Upside down was, but <laughs> not, not right side up anyway. And so our T-34 training, we ended up about 35, 40 hours or so in that. And then we went to what we call primary jet training, and that was a Meridian, and the aircraft was the T-2, the Buckeye. It was a single engine version of the T-2, straight wing airplane, very docile aircraft. And that was our primary trainer. We went through a syllabus there uh, that lasted about six to seven months and took us all the way through formation flying, some instrument work, but not a whole lot. The interesting thing about the, my last hop at, at, at Meridian, which is kind of interesting, it was a four-plane hop, and we were all four of us Marines, right? And our chase pilot was going to be uh, Lieutenant Commander John McCain. Mm -hmm. And so John McCain was our chase pilot. Well, John... Bless his heart was probably not the best stick in the world in his day. <laughs> he had that reputation. So he ended up taking off, and unfortunately, he didn't do a very good pre-flight, and he took off with the cover still on his uh, angle of attack indicator. Ooh, yeah. So the T2 immediately goes into rudder shaker, which in this case was on the, on the rudder pedals. And he said, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll just keep going. Well, of course, the next thing you know, that little motor burned up. He was all full of smoke in his cockpit and everything. So he had to come back around and lay in and get another <laughs> aircraft. But there's the four of us up there doing our best version of a Blue Angels right over downtown Meridian <laughs> in our four-plane diamond formation. Uh, but John was uh, our, our instructor for that last hop, which I thought was kind of interesting anyway. You know, it's funny, those, even those lessons, because those stories permeate through you know, the Air Force with either frozen AOA indexers, and that yeah. was a static import that happened in the Viper. In one case, we lost two F-16s because they froze over because the probe heat. Yeah. Wasn't turned on. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. It's simple things like that. We've lost a B2 with moisture inside a probe, yeah. et cetera. So. Well, at least you took the cover off. You want to take it. the you want to take the cover <laughs> that's off. A good, that's a good side. The one that says remove before right, flight. Right. Right. That's why they're bright orange or red or whatever it might be. Yeah. You got to pay attention to that you walk around and just take yeah. your time there a yeah. little bit. So going through Meridian, that time period, I have some time in Mississippi myself. And yeah. I would duck into Meridian to do a PAR approach. Yeah. You mentioned not doing much instrument flying. Yeah. Things have changed a little bit over the years, but I was interested to learn that most Navy aircraft, at least the Hornet, except for the Blue Angels, they don't have an ILS in them. No. And yeah, that's the bread and butter when no. it comes back to an instrument recovery no, usually. Absolutely, yeah, it is. And uh, yeah, it left us just to attack and approaches. 
or ADF, which is, you know, very, very unreliable. That's not terrifying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty basic stuff back then. So once we left Marine, we came back here to NES Pensacola and VT-4, which is, still exists, but it's primarily a, a simulator squadron now. Okay. And in VT-4, we came back down here, we did air-to-air -air gunnery in the T-2, and we did carrier quals. So we got a full, ser full set of carrier quals in on the T-2 as well. How long did that last? It, that was uh, about a month, maybe six weeks here. And yeah. when you're doing that carrier qualification, how many landings are you getting? Like how many days does that take up? We're actually it's going- It's normally to... a two day deal. We'd go out and we'd, the first day out there, we'd do bounces. They wouldn't let us drop the hook. You just go down and, and do a couple of bounces and then you come back around. If they feel that you're good enough, they go ahead and say, okay, drop your hook and we'll make an arrested landing. And then of course you get the cat shots and all too with that, which was very interesting. You know, it's the first time you ever shoot, get shot off a ship on the cat. It's, it's really quite a thrill. You're pulling a lot of G's, but they're not you know, vertical G's, they're right. horizontal G's. And so you get the feeling you're almost like going over the top of a roller coaster from the, when they fire you off. Even the little T2 was a, quite a trip. We had a carrier here then, the USS Lexington. It was our training carrier. It was homeported right here in Pensacola. Okay. So we always did all of our training flights off of the uh, USS Lexington. And then when we completed that, it was out to either Kingsville or Beeville for advanced training. There are trainers back then were the F-9, the F-the Cougar, which is the uh, swept-wing version of the F-9. And uh, it was uh, uh, Grumman's finest. It, it was a lead sled, you know. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. They could take a, a lot of beating, and they took a lot of beating and training out there, too. But it was a fun airplane to fly. And we went through a full syllabus with that, too, which lasted, I think I was about 22 months doing, doing the whole training thing. From start to through, finish start here, to Pensacola, finish. Meridian, back to Pensacola. Yeah, the only thing that held us up back then, we didn't have the delays like the kids do today. But we ended up with a lot of weather days, up, especially up at Meridian in the, in the winter months up there. The weather wasn't the best. No delays. Is that because based on the environment and the need for... Well, yeah, back then, out? I mean, it was pretty obvious. We were getting, we were in the war, and we, and we had to have pretty high turnover. So we had to, we, they kept us moving right through pretty well. How many people did you graduate with, you know, roughly? When you're talking graduate, you mean my pinning on wings and all? If we go talk we, like a pilot training class to a jet class. No, by that time you're spread out so much. It just happened at different times. You know, you might have two or three at the same time that got okay. pinned, uh, got their wings on. But we didn't have a class graduation like they do in a lot of cases now, no. Okay. It was just individually. And uh, because, you know, you would finish the syllabus at different times. They wouldn't keep you waiting around for a class to graduate. Yeah, they'd they'd pin you and send you to your operational squadron. Wrapping up that training iteration. I assume then you're off to your first operational squadron? It does. It, in the Marine Corps, we went to, uh, right to uh, whatever base we were going to fly out of. And, of course, we didn't have uh, training, special training squadrons like the Navy did back then. You actually went to right operational squadron, and they would teach you the airplane in the operational squadron. And I checked in at uh, Beaufort, uh, at Marine Corps Station Beaufort, and the, the guy gave me an option of either going to an uh, F-4 squadron right away we're hanging out for an F-8 squadron that was coming back off a of med cruise in about a week. So I elected the F-8, obviously, I, that was my, my choice. So I waited for the squadron to come in and then I joined the F-8 squadron. So but no, we call them B courses in the Air Force, the basic course where you learn to fly the F-16, the F-15, Navy, I think calls it the RAG. Yeah. So we you're, just, you're we doing went, it in-house training. We were right into an operational squadron, that's correct. And they had a syllabus and it was an extensive syllabus because not only was the training you to fly the airplane, it was training you to fly the airplane in combat. And so it took uh, almost, uh, I'd say a year of training there before we were sent over to Vietnam. 
And we did, the D model of the F-8 we were flying was not, did not have hard points on the wings. So we couldn't carry any ordnance. We couldn't do any bombing, if you will. But we did simulations. We'd go out and get into that 70 degree dive angle that we looked for for dropping dumb bombs. We did a lot of work out in Yuma, the Chocolate Mountain Range out there where you could do live firing. There are very few places here on the East Coast where right. you could actually do live firing. Yeah, and I'd say it's gotten worse since then. But what made you want to pick the F-8 over the F-4? What was Reputation. The... It was the hot rod of its day. I think okay. everybody used to say the last of the gunfighters, you know, it was, yeah. and, and it was not an easy airplane to fly. It was a difficult airplane to fly. What was challenging yeah. about it? Well, the most challenging thing, of course, was probably the fact that that variable incidence wing on there and the other thing was, too, that you couldn't get low and slow on that airplane, especially if you're coming aboard an aircraft carrier. You wanted to make sure you kept your speed up. You got low and slow in that with that big wing up. It was a tremendous amount of drag on the airplane. If you got low and slow, even though you had a powerful engine on there, you may and may not be able to recover. So she was a tough airplane to bring aboard. You had to be very, very, very careful. Although we never actually, I never actually flew the F-8 off of a carrier. When we went to Vietnam, we were stationed. What the Navy did, or Marine Corps did, is they pulled all of their squadrons off of uh, naval aircraft carriers and land-based them. Okay. And instead of moving the squadrons, they left the squadrons in place and they rotated pilots in and out. We operated out of either Da Nang Air Base or Chu Lai Air Base. Those were the two bases that we operated out of in South Vietnam. Did you ever get carrier qualified in the F-8 then? Or? I did not, but okay. we flew it off of a thing called a SATS field, okay. which was an awful lot uh, was similar to a, a, a carrier because you had a resting gear. Yeah, and a, 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 a catapult system to launch you in all two. So I did fly it off of the SATS fields, but I never did fly it off of a carrier. When you gave us a tour of the F-8, I was just looking at it. One, being an F-16, I feel like spoiled with the bubble canopy. You feel like you're sitting in a yeah. telephone pole and you can see very well. Obviously there's a HUD. You fly angle of attack for landing, but even with F-16, you have to be careful not to scrape the turkey feathers on yeah. the exhaust can. Yeah based on it, looking at the F-8, just how close that tail is to the ground, yeah. it looks like that's something that would be a challenge. Yeah, you cannot aerodynamic brakes. I know you guys like the aerodynamic to aerodynamic brake in the Air Force a lot, <laughs> yeah, but we we could, to, yeah. you couldn't do that in that airplane because you'd be dragging the tail for sure. Yeah, it may look like the clearance on that thing is not made, it, it, not very much maybe at all. A foot, I'm, well, that variable incidence wing, some people say you're raising the wing, other people say you're lowering the fuselage. But whichever, <laughs> whichever way it is, it still didn't give you a whole lot of room between the tail and the ground when you landed. No? Yeah, it looks like it was a fun plane to fly in. And I think, again, we talked about it being a fast plane, yeah. especially in that day and age, which would have been pretty exciting yeah, to fly. Yeah, it really was, yeah. The, uh, like I mentioned, the first flight before in, in the thing, there were no two-seaters. So the first time you strap it on, right. you, you strapped it on. And I never did fly an airplane with a afterburner in training. So we take off and the chase pilot's back there. And the one thing I'm really worried about is making sure I get that wing down and locked by 220 knots. Next thing I know, I'm going through 20,000 feet, and my chase pilot's hollering, will you please come out of burner? I can't catch you. <laughs> but I did get the wing down and locked. As you got there in a hurry, the uh, F-8 had a single stage burner. So when you lit it, you got it all right away. It, didn't have a, it wasn't staged. How was the, so I'm thinking too, that time frame, obviously the nation's at war, the nation needs fighter pilots. And I would imagine the rotation through the squadron. What is the ops tempo in the squadron? Are guys forward deployed or is the whole squadron at home and then you're going together once you get through training? What was that environment like? Well, when I, VMFAW 451 in Beaufort, South Carolina was the squadron I joined right out of training. 
And uh, th that was a, a full operational squadron. And like I said, they just came back off of a med cruise. They had the D models, which were the probably the premier fighter versions of it back in those days, too. And like I said, we had no hard points on the wing, so we couldn't do any air to ground except simulate it when we went out to Yuma. But if, the syllabus that they put us through was very, very extensive, especially in air-to-air -air combat stuff, too. The other thing we got to do back then, this was when we had a hot pad down in Key West, Florida. This was during the, you know, just right after, after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so whenever the Cuban MiGs were out chasing our Coast Guard aircraft around, why we'd go launch out of our hot pad down there in Key West, Florida and go chase after the MiGs and chase them back into their base, uh, which was, I think, San Antonio was the name of the base just to the west of, uh, of uh, Havana down there. But at any rate, that was kind of fun stuff, uh, you know. After burner, go, <laughs> go, go burner and go all the way down there and chase after MiG-21s. Was that something that's happened? I mean, to me, that's fascinating. I'd love to yeah. hear more about that. Well, hot pad, of course, you're standing in the hot pad. You're, if you're on call, you're, you're sitting right in the trailer, right next to the, uh, the flight line where the aircraft are sitting there all ready to go. And if they, if they push the button on you, which they, they did for quite frequently back then, because all of these uh, MiG-21s were coming out of Havana over there. They were chasing after our Coast Guard airplanes, mostly it was what they were after. Were the those... Coast Guard was out there trying to rescue the people that are trying to leave Cuba right. coming to the States. That time period, so MiG-21s getting chased down. Is that Russians that are flying, or Soviets that are flying those? No, no, they were Cuban pilots. And the Soviets were down there teaching them how to fly. Okay. But I, I assume that they were Cuban pilots that were flying it. What an interesting time. They period. would not, uh, they wouldn't engage us. Uh, they wouldn't even get near us. They saw us coming, uh, the radar would pick, pick us up coming in that way. They'd put them, they'd chase them right back to their base. They, they wouldn't, wouldn't have anything to do with us. Ah, that's but interesting. Just trying to keep them away from our Coast Guard uh, guys that are out there trying to pick up all of the uh, people who are trying to leave the island of Cuba. So. Did you, and you did that before going to Vietnam, or was that? Yeah, that was before. Yeah, I was okay. when I was still at 451 there, too. So. It was interesting. Yeah, to say the least. Again, that time period, yeah. there's a lot that's going on in the yeah. world that... Indeed. You yeah. know, I've, I've been able to see in the movies or read it in history books, but to kind of... Yeah. Your, your, your first person experience is really cool for me. It was it was it was kind of a fun time uh, to be in the military. Uh, you were you, you were you knew you were going to get challenged, <laughs> you uh, know. Yeah. And that's what I think a lot of us at that particular time frame, you know, in our early twenties like that, we were we were bulletproof, and so you want to be challenged. So right. yeah, you want to get out there and do the job yeah. you're training for. And life's a lot different when guys are shooting at you. Trust me, <laughs> <laughs> that makes a big difference too. So how long were you doing that before going to Vietnam? We were in, I was in the squadron almost a year, about okay. a year, yeah, before we went through the full syllabus. Okay. And the uh, commanding officer of 451 was going over to take over the squadron, which was VMFAW 235 in Da Nang. And uh, I had completed the syllabus and all, I asked to go with him, and he took me along. Uh, How many people, was it just uh, you and the commander went over? and then No, there were a couple of up? others, several others that went with us as well, too. There weren't that many guys that had F-8 MOSs back then. They, they were being phased out of the Marine Corps. Okay. In fact, 235, the squadron I joined in Da Nang, was the last active duty F-8 squadron in the, in, the, in the Marine Corps. When you're going over there, are you taking your own jets, your squadron jets? No, they're already there. that's already there, yeah. They, they decided to just leave the squadrons in place and just rotate the pilots. Okay. And this was a 67, 68 time frame. All right, so talk to me about that time frame, 67, 68. What was... The conflict looking like what was the tempo of things and how were things going? We were we were pretty high tempo back in those days. Uh, this was just before Tet. Tet, of course, happened in February of '68, which was probably the most active time of all that, I, that, that at least when I was over there as well. 
But uh, yeah, st the tempo was pretty pretty high. Uh, you would fly one, at least one mission a day in most cases. Maybe occasionally, if if you had to, you could have more than one. Uh, just depending upon uh, what what pilots were available, what aircraft were available, and all too. The E models of the F-8 that we had over there were the newest models at that particular time, but keeping them up was a problem. We'd have 18 to 20 aircraft in the in the um, in the squadron. But uh, out of those 18 or 20, if we had 10 to 12 that were ready to go, uh, that would be about standard. Um, was that maintenance limfax? It was all kinds of stuff. Yeah, mostly mostly maintenance stuff. Of course, we lost a few too. Right. I did my part. I, yeah. I lost one, two, four. <laughs> but at Not any rate, choice, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that, there was. Uh, it was a it was a pretty up tempo time. And what were the missions, what was kind of the average day in the life of, what were you guys going out there doing? A lot of close air support for the Marines on the ground in I-Corps. We did an awful lot of that. We did interdiction missions on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. With a 20 millimeter cannon in the nose of the aircraft, we could also be very, very accurate. So a lot of times we do search and rescue missions. Okay. Uh, if the Air Force didn't have a Sandy or something there that was available, they'd call us in. And we could get really close to the good guy without hurting him and keep the bad guys away too. Um, yeah, it was a it was a it was pretty upbeat time. TPQs were radar missions. They'd fly those at night. Uh, we'd be just flying along, and they would have a, a radar operator looking at you, and he knew what the ordinance you had, and he knew the target, and he knew everything where he wanted the aircraft dropped. He'd be he would be teaching you or t talking you into uh, uh, one degree heading changes. Actually, or one or two really? degree heading. Yeah, they were fairly accurate, and he'd give you the exact release point. We compete with the Blue Angels now too, by the way. So. Yeah, you know, it's a good environment to be in. Obviously, being surrounded by all this aviation piece, and then having the Blue Angels fly up, it's a yeah. per perfect environment to be at. It is, uh, yeah. I think. Talk about a, a TPQ mission. That's something yeah. again. That's there was that, a radar it, control it, drop. Uh, they were they were watching us on radar. They would show us, uh, take us to the point, and we they'd give us an altitude to be, to fly at. They give us the load that we they wanted to, to drop. And they would, with the basis of that information, they would have an exact point where they wanted you to release the ordinance. And so you're just basically flying along. This was all done at night, you know, right. too. But uh, at any rate, uh, it was a very easy mission, if you will. I mean, it wasn't much to them at all. We would do some up with the southern part of North Vietnam, but most of it was done over the northern part of South Vietnam. To me, that's pretty impressive, obviously, the accuracy that goes into it. Now you yeah. can do that with GPS and the jets, so that doesn't, yeah. doesn't exist. but. Even flying at nighttime, uh, you know, any radar sites still work at nighttime. Sure. I, I know you mentioned it's kind of, those are easier benign missions because I imagine driving straight and level, but yeah. you still had a threat out there to yeah. deal with. Well, yeah, oh yeah. You know, I mean, it was always a possibility depending on where the SAMs were, you know. If you were up in the southern part of North Vietnam, you could you could easily get into their, their territory. In that time period too, I mean, was that the concern once you got up into northern Vietnam? It was, yeah. Like that's, Primarily it was the surface air missiles, yeah. And were you worried, what were you, were you, I guess, was there a predominant threat that, that you were concerned with, or was it just all of it during that time? Well, all of it, really. Of course, most of the work that we were doing in the F-8 was close air support, so we were down low and slow, so our, our biggest problem was, was ground, ground fire. Was did, you, did you experience, was there a lot of shoulder fire missiles? Were like, was that of a concern? Was it all just kind of AAA? Like they were all trip, pretty much all AAA back then. I don't think we had anything quite like the missile systems that they have today, the shoulder-fired missiles, right. the hand-carried missiles. But you had uh, a tremendous amount of anti-aircraft fire. And Talk to me about the challenges of flying close air support in that day with one, probably just being able to visually acquire the guys on the ground that you're helping out, the enemy, 
radio, terrain, what were some of the things you were having to deal with to fly? Well, terrain could be a challenge at times too. We could work in places like Quezon, which was an, a, a well-familiar name. It was a small airfield. It was up in the northwestern uh, part of South Vietnam. And uh, that was hilly. It was, and of course, most of everything we were doing there, we had to get down pretty close to the ground. We were dropping things like snake eye bombs, you know, the ones with the fins on them, they retard them. So they, you could do it at a fairly shallow angle, a dive angle. And the Zuni rockets, the 20 millimeter cannon and all that stuff, you were just down there in the weeds with them. And um, so those were, those were challenging. The most challenging missions for me were at night when we had to fly under the, under the flares. Uh, we didn't have any night vision goggles or anything back then. So you'd have a C-130 flying over the target area and he'd drop flares and you had to make your runs underneath the flares. You lose a tremendous amount of your depth perception in there and it can get a little hairy flying those things at night, especially in places like the Ashaw Valley things like that where the terrain was a real factor as well too. Yeah, a little hairy I might say is an understatement. That sounds yeah. really hairy. What was it like coordinating with C-130s, having them drop, dealing, again, like I imagine you have a bright flare, you can see the ground, but that's also messing with your natural night vision it as does. you're transitioned to probably deconflicting from your wind, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, you had several challenges there too. Those Zuni, rocket, Zuni rockets that we talked about, if you had your eyes open when you fired one of those things, you lost your night vision completely. So you actually got yourself in a position where you're ready to fire, close your eyes, shoot the missile, and then you can open <laughs> your eyes back up again so you didn't go night blind on them. But uh, the 20 millimeter cannon, of course, we use those a lot at night as well too. And we'd load some uh, tracers in there so you'd be able to see where your hits were and all too. So it was, a, it was a challenge. I have to say the night flying under the flares was probably about the hairiest. That sounds yeah. really sporty. Several mesh missions over North Vietnam, uh, as we've alluded to in the previous kind of discussion, but I want to talk about the night, you know, you always talk about takeoffs matching landings. Unfortunately, you got one less landing, I think, than Yeah, than the it was but. my 98th mission, I got bagged. <laughs> yeah. It was an interdiction mission in the Ho Chi Minh Trail over the central part of Laos. I'd taken off from uh, Da Nang with a section. I was section lead. And uh, the idea behind this thing was, was a place where the Ho Chi Minh Trail came down the side of a mountain with a bunch of switchbacks on it. Okay. And the idea behind it was to cave the mountainside in on the switchbacks so that it would block the road. It was a single lane road most of the places in Laos, so if you blocked it, you had traffic start to back up on it, and then that would be a sitting duck for follow-on attack uh, missions as well. So my wingman ran in, he dropped his ordnance, pulled off the target, and I tried to figure out a running heading would probably be the least likely that I would be bagged on, if you would. But uh, unfortunately, those guys were pretty good. They've been sitting there for a year or two doing nothing but shooting at American airplanes, and they pretty much had the, the routine down. As I pulled it off the target, my wingman said, Dave, I think you've been hit. Looks like you're trailing smoke. I looked down at the instrument panel. I didn't see much of anything going on. I said, ah, that's probably just cons because we're in a real high uh, humidity area there. But shortly after that, the lights started to come on, you know. <laughs> the yellow ones at first, right. right, you know. You get uh, hydraulic one, and then you got to deal with the hydraulic, the hydraulic engine oil pressure low, this, that, and the other. And finally, even the engine fire warning light came on. I had a choice back then, you know, with this, this age-old adage that we have in, in naval aviation that it's uh, generally inadvisable to eject over an area that you just bombed. So <laughs> trying to get as far away from there as I possibly could, we started heading west. I elected not to go east, which would have taken me back over South Vietnam to the South China Sea. And I elected to go to the west to try and get to Thailand and get across the Thai border. 
The, uh, I locked the throttle down at about 92% RPM, trying not to accelerate or decelerate the engine, seeing if I could lock the, uh, the uh, lubrication in as much as I could on, on the bearings and all. Right. And, and that J57 engine ran for about five or six minutes for me with very low or no oil pressure. It was really a, a lifesaver, to say the least. I got to 12,000 feet, and uh, I was joined up by an F-4 that was coming off a Pac-6 mission, going back to Yubon Air Force Base. And, of course, all this time I was able to talk to the people on guard, tell them I was in, in extremis and probably would need help. I didn't make it to Yubon, so I had to go ahead and eject. The uh, first big bang I got, the guy that was chasing me, I said, Dave, you had about 15 feet of flyer at the tail of your aircraft there. And I said, well, it's still running. I'll hang on a little oh, yeah. while longer. <laughs> you know. And then finally, the second time, the big bang was out the front and the back of the engine. So it started to unwind, so it was time to get out. The ejection system, it was a Martin Baker, it was an F, uh, F5 seat, it, was a, uh, it wasn't a, pow uh, was a powder seat, it wasn't a, a rocket like you got today. And so when you fired that thing, you went, I mean, like right away. Yeah. The F8, the canopy did go. You, did, you could go through the canopy, but the normal sequence was that the canopy would go. And once the, the whole thing, I was about 12,000 feet, so the whole sequence kept going, pushed you away from the seat. So, uh, the chute deployed it was fully and completely. And uh, you looked up and you see this absolutely beautiful canopy above you up there with all the panels intact. And you, wow, it worked. How yeah. neat is that? And then you look down, you see your airplane making its final approach, <laughs> just heading for the ground. Uh, pretty sad. But uh, I was in the ha I was hanging there for in the straps for a good while at 12,000 feet. You got yeah. a lot of time yeah, in the straps. 12, 12 minutes, 13. Yeah, minutes. And you worry a little bit. You know the Marcus of Queensbury rules were off over there. They take pot shots at you hanging in the straps, no doubt. But l luckily, I'd gotten far enough away from the bad guys. I didn't have to worry about it. Misjudged the ground, and uh, my knee came up and hit my chin, slipped, split my lip. But that's the worst of it. And I walked wow. away from it without any problems after that. Uh, you've got a couple of thoughts. You got to go down there. You say, "Well, I don't see anybody around here." But now, if I hit the ground and there is somebody there, do I want to start a firefight with my little 38 snub nose against some guy with an automatic weapon? You know. <laughs> right. So you hit the ground, and the first thing you're looking for is some place to hide. So I find some scrub brushes to hide under. Left the chute. Left my my escape or my uh, seat back. Uh, all the survival gear and everything. Just let it scattered all over the wall, <laughs> all over the place, and just went. Looking to hide for the, he went and hide in the bush somewhere. And uh, I'd been talking to the guys and telling them, you know, I was in trouble. So they had launched the helicopter. So I was only on the ground about 20, maybe 30 minutes at the most until they came and picked me up. And all the stuff that I left scattered around as well, too. That's incredible. I mean, us being able to get out and, and get away a good bit, yeah. be able to talk on the radio. I was a lucky fellow. I was a very lucky fellow, no you, doubt. You're dealing with a lot of things. We do survival school, and they do some case studies of different things, yeah. one of which uh, an F-117 that went down. But in the shoot, he's talking on the radio. So his pickup was very quick versus mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scott O'Grady who got shot down in the F-16. Mm -hmm. He spent some time evading on the ground right. and then just trying to talk about just getting the rescue forces going yeah. and you trying to get as close to them as possible is, sure. a, is a huge deal. So yeah, that, yeah I, was, I was a very lucky guy. The J57 engine, <laughs> I still swear by it. That was, that was a, quite the a, quite a thing. What were, I mean, I imagine you're trying to figure, you're not really thinking about a bunch of things other than trying to get to good guy land and, and probably stick with the aircraft. But I thought I thought I could make it all the way to U-Bahn. I'd try and land the thing, you know. If I, if, even if I had to do a power off landing, you know, we used to do those High, high key, low key. You remember right, yeah, those, yeah, power off landing? 
but uh, unfortunately, we didn't get that far. Or maybe fortunately, right. we didn't get that far. Right. It might have been an absolute disaster, too, if we'd have tried it. So who knows? How did uh, you end up with an F-4 on your wing? Where'd, where'd your wingman end up? I sent him back. To, we were right at the end of our, uh, our, our combat radius, and I sent him back home. Uh, there was, this F-4 was coming along about that time, and he, he stayed with me the rest of the way until they picked me up. Which, again, yeah, you, you just said, hey, that F-4 picked you up. There's still some finesse that goes into coordinating that. So you kick your wingman off, get him going home, and then yeah, just, well, was it talking on? Is there a well, I was on, I was on guard. Yes. I, was, I was hollering on guard, you know. Everyone's I here. gave up on any tactical frequencies. <laughs> we were, I was a help. Right. <laughs> you know? But, yeah, everybody was, was very, very good about uh, trying to make sure that this thing came out successfully. And uh, luckily for me, it did. Did you get picked up by Jolly Greens? Or did you no, get... it was actually the Yubon uh, Air Force's uh, rescue helicopter, the, okay. the one that was based there in, in, the, in the base. Okay. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a specifically Jolly Green, but it was the same type of aircraft, but it was based with the Yubon Air Force Base. What happened after you got picked up? What was the kind of next few days, weeks? Well, it was kind of interesting, you know, when I got back to Yubon, of course, the first thing they wanted to do is let a flight surgeon look me over, and he did. And uh, he said, you're, you're looking good. He said, no reason for you to stay here. He wants you to go back to Da Nang. He did give me a pint of whiskey. Yeah. That was good. <laughs> and uh, I enjoyed that at the back of the C-130, or C-47, rather, on the way back to Da Nang. And, uh, but uh, I wanted to get back on the flight schedule right away. Last thing you want to do when something like that happens is just sit on the ground and think right. about it. You want to get back in the saddle again as quick as you can. They wouldn't let me fly the next day, but they let me fly the day after that. And so I got back into it pretty quickly. Oh, that's awesome. Plus the other fact, they were pretty short of pilots anyway, yeah. so. <laughs> there was a uh, need. <laughs> yeah, needs what, of the service. Was it AAA? That... Uh, yeah, it, well, you know, I thought it was 37 millimeter, but it's my understanding that eventually they got to that, that aircraft, the wrecked aircraft, and they said it was 50 caliber. Okay. I couldn't, because 37 millimeter, you could normally see that, looked like a white bird. That they would, you know, because of the condensation around the shell as it was passing by you, yeah. you could you could actually see them when they it's got a, close. It's a big bullet. Yeah, the 50 caliber, unless there were tracers on it, you never would see. So, man, that is an, an incredible story. What was the next few months? So you're back on the flying schedule. Yeah, and... I, I, that was my 98th mission. I ended up with 200 before we finally left. I I really was lucky because most guys, the I was an 03. Most uh, guys that were 03s at that time had to go do a, a Ford Air Controller mission. You either went to a battalion or you went to a company or you went to some god-awful place down there where they would stick you for about three or four months and let you become the Ford Air Controller for that particular group. But there were so few of us that had F-8 MOSs that were company grade. There were plenty of uh, field grade, but not too many company grades. So they let me stick with the squadron. And the other lucky thing that happened to me about that time, there was a... a, a a spy ship called the Pueblo, and the North Vietnamese, or North Koreans rather, had taken the Pueblo, had, had, had taken the aircraft, or taken the ship, and hauled it back into uh, uh, somewhere in North Korea, I guess. But at any rate, uh, they had no fighter assets anywhere in, West, in the Western Pacific except in country, in, in Vietnam. So wanting a fighter squadron, they said, okay, we're going to take that F-8 squadron, we're going to move them up to Iwakuni, Japan. So you can imagine how excited we were about leaving <laughs> Da Nang, going to Iwakuni, Japan, where we were the absolute only squadron. And they took our F-80s away from us, and they gave us a couple of old F-8B, B models, which were the second version of the aircraft. And uh, they were not in the best of shape, but we had some really great maintenance guys who were able to keep them going for us. And we operated out of Iwakuni for about three or four months. 
we did nothing but air to air. That's all we did because the, the B model didn't have anything to do, air, no air to ground capability at all. Yeah, you couldn't do any live firing or anything around the, the uh, Japanese mainland. So we had to go down to Okinawa and we go down to Naha, Okinawa where we do our live firing exercises. And we did some fancy stuff. We did air to air combat. We did air to air uh, gunnery. Uh, subsonic and supersonic pattern, which is something I, I never even knew it was capable, but inside the reversal, you're at 1.1 Mach, you know. We had to tow our own banners because we had no contractors over there. So they put a banner tow where the, uh, the, normally the uh, Sidewinder missiles would go. They'd hang that thing on there, and then you'd run your couple thousand feet of, of cable out and the banner tow it with an F-8. That was exciting too. Who, was, so. who drew the short straw to be out front? Uh, well, being a, being like I said, there weren't many of us uh, company grade officers back then. So guess who? <laughs> right. I've shot the banner, but with contractors towing the banner, well, yeah. I kind of look. I was like, no contractors I, back then. Yeah, I was like, I know some of the guys. You know, some of the lieutenants. Well, especially when you start like, talking about yeah. a supersonic pattern where you're 1.1 in a reversal and all. I'm thinking, man, you don't want to pull too hard on that nose. <laughs> Not much, be, not much between the no, banner and that when you're going no, that speed. No, not not at that kind of speed. Perch at thirty, perch around thirty thousand feet in reversals. We would tow around, I don't know, around twenty, twenty-two thousand somewhere around there. It was <laughs> it was exciting. But Again, maybe our definition of exciting might might vary slightly, but well, like and, I told you, you you want to challenge yourself. You, yeah. We challenged ourselves quite a bit with that, with that aircraft and the squadrons I was in. Were you guys doing anything with the USS Pueblo, or is that just? I mean, that's why you got relocated. Well, the only reason but, they moved us up there is in case something like that happened again. We couldn't okay. go. No, they didn't send us to uh, Korea at all. No, uh, we were just basically on standby. Okay, but it was kind of nice. We were the only squadron in Iwakuni at the time, and yeah. it, you know, there's a. Neat, neat little town, and we had the whole place to ourselves. It was very nice. And like I said, nothing but air to air. That's all we were doing. It was fun stuff. And that, I mean, you had 200 combat missions up to that point, then three months roughly in, in Japan, and then you're back stateside? Yeah, after the, uh, the tour in Japan, they took the, squ the squadron flag and they moved it over to Hawaii, and uh, they made an F 4 squadron out of it. 235 okay. became an F-4 squadron, and I got a, a, a job back at uh, Meridian, Mississippi in VT-7 as a flight instructor. Okay. And, to, and I stayed there for about a year, and then uh, it came time for me to move on from my flight instructor tour. And so I called a detailer and I said, uh, what do you got planned for me? And he said, well, Dave, I think we're going to cross-train you into helicopters. And the Navy, Marine Corps was doing a lot of that really? back in the day. Yeah, well helicopter pilot's lifespan was a lot shorter than fixed wing back then. And I gave it a little thought and I said, nah. <laughs> I, I escaped that one tour high and fast. I don't particularly want to go back low and slow for another try that. So I went ahead and gave up my commission and went to work for Delta Airlines at that time. Did a full career there? 33 years, 32 years, 10 months. Yeah. Not, not that anyone's counting. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was a beautiful career, it really was. I enjoyed it very much. I was sad in a way to give up a commission, a regular commission that I had in the Marine Corps. I, mean, I didn't want to do that. But by the time, that, that was 1970, and it was pretty obvious then that the, the war was, was over. I mean, it, it was lost for all practical purposes. And it wasn't, of course, until President Nixon started the uh, linebacker uh, B-52 bombings and everything that finally drew the guys to the table there and they came up with a, uh, you know some sort of a solution. But I just really, I just, uh, I, I lost all that challenge and all of that gung-ho that I had back in the 1964 when we, or three and four, when we were talking about going to Vietnam. You know. 
It had worn off by then. Yeah, you've kind of been around the block and seen it. Because I was, was going to ask, do you think you would have stayed in had they not tried to send you to go fly helicopters? I think if they put me in an F-4 squadron, I probably would have stayed. I really do. Yeah. yeah. I was a fighter pilot. By, I mean, that's what I felt like. I just Anything else other than that, I said, I'm going to have to fly low. If I'm going to have to fly something else, I might as well go make a lot of money doing it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I hit it at a good time. It was pretty much the golden age of commercial aviation in 1970 when I came in, just transferring, uh, trans transitioning over from props to jets, you know, and it was uh, the airlines back then could make money with a 35% load factor, right. <laughs> it was 90% like they got to have now or whatever. Uh, it was it was pretty much a, a fun deal back in the day. But again, I, it did. I, I did really didn't want to give up that commission, but. You know, you worked hard for it to get through the academy for four years. And, uh, right. Uh, Dedicated, yeah, your youthful years, essentially the, the best years, some might say, that, yeah, and, to, to and doing it that. Was a, you know, it was a different place, too, the academy was than it is today. It was an all-male school back in the military academy. Plebe years were really difficult. I mean, they, I had a, a guy that was after me for the entire plebe year. There. I'll never forget his name. His name was Dick Curley. And you'd go to, his, he had these come-arounds in the morning, you know, where you had to be there right at the Reveille time. You had to be in and you had to do all these calisthenics and stuff like that. And he'd be sitting there in his underwear reading his Bible and just, just beating me to death, you know. <laughs> it just went on and on. <laughs> the only time we ever got out of there was for the Army-Navy game, which was uh, normally in early December or, or late November, and then for Christmas, you know. And I remember going back for Christmas. My mother had to actually throw me out of the house, plebe beer, and say, get back and finish what you started. But it's pretty fascinating. It's a different time. You know, we always say kinder, gentler today. I imagine you have some stories when it comes down to just. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what kind of hazing and those like, things. Like, uh, hazing was perfectly fine. I mean, there was, no, you know, there was no other. I mean, there were no limitations, really. I mean, you couldn't beat the guy to death, but you could certainly hit on him, you right. know. Right. And if you were a plebe, you were lucky if you got a full meal in it at any time there because of the stuff that it would do to you at the dinner table, you know. It was, it was, it was different, different, a lot different back then. Well, sir, as we kind of wrap up here, I always like to ask my guests, if you found 15, 16-year-old you know, Dave walking down the street, is there any advice you would give him, tips, tricks, tell him to do something different? Well, I'll tell you what, I, I, that's one of the reasons I enjoy being here as a, as a volunteer. Uh, you know, honor the past but inspire the future, trying to get as many people interested in, in uh, naval aviation as you possibly can. I, I think it's a, a superb way for a young kid to get it started now. Uh, the education you get in, in the military, uh, whether it be ROTC scholarship or an academy or something like that, is, is always first rate. The uh, flight training you would get as an aviator, you can't match it. You just can't match it. I mean, it's so good that the FAA actually waives now the uh, the requirement for a, an ATP uh, to about 1,200 hours instead of the 1,500 or whatever it is that they're, right. they're required. And so, yeah, it, I think the military service is, is a worthwhile thing. I really do. I'm just... Uh, you know, a little concerned that I, I gave up my commission. It still kind of eats at me at times. But uh, being here to be able to hopefully talk to some of these young kids and try and uh, give them a, a sense of feeling that uh, this is really what you're doing is really a great career choice. And uh, trying to get the other ones that haven't been in the military yet to think about it as a, as a career. Which is an important thing. Cause, you know, 
there are more and more people that have no ties or connection to the military. Right. And if I had to go back and do it again, I think I would 100% go do it. The opportunities, oh, I would the, too, the yeah. experiences, the people you get to meet and work with, yeah. you can't find that that yeah. anywhere else. The but. camaraderie that you build up in the military is something too, especially the guys that <clears throat> you end up flying in combat with. Well, those are guys I still keep in touch with today, uh, even though we're getting a little long in the tooth, yeah. those of us that are still around. <laughs> We still try and uh, keep in touch with each other and all too, because you you build a certain bond, you know, and, and that's something you'll never find in the civilian world. You never yeah. find it. It's a completely different environment, and sure. different different requirements, different mission uh, that you're being out asked to go out there and do. And again, like sure. you said, like you won't find that anywhere else. Yeah, I, I totally agree, John. Certainly do. Well, sir, I really appreciate it. Thank you for just sitting down, chatting, and sharing your story. That's been my pleasure. Yeah. I enjoyed Thanks, talking sir. to you. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate it, sir. Go Navy. Beat Air Force. <laughs> I'll let it slide <laughs> this one time. But, sir, thanks again for joining the podcast. Yeah. Each remember to hope you enjoyed this. we got more coming your way.